Before we get into today's show, please make sure to subscribe to Forward Guidance on your favorite podcast app, whether that's Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. Thanks. Let's get on with the show. I am happy to welcome Greg Steinmetz, author of American Rascal, How Jay Gould uh, Built America's Largest Fortune. Greg, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Greg, you work in the investment business, but your, your night job is writing books about finance. So it's very impressive to me that you sort of find the time. Uh, so this is your second book. And I know when you write a book of this magnitude, you can't just be interested in Jay Gould. You have to love Jay Gould. So my first question is, how did you become so fascinated with Jay Gould? What about him drew you in? Well, uh, my, my first book was about a Renaissance banker, a guy from the Middle Ages in Germany named Jacob Fugger. And what drew me to him was I was living in Germany at the time, and everyone in Germany knew the name Fugger just as Americans know Rockefeller, but no one in America had heard anything about him. So I thought, huh, this is interesting. It's probably something that people should know about, and I would love to be the person who introduces him to an American audience. And it was kind of the same with Gould. Gould is a name that people know, but they don't know much about him. As I asked my Wall Street friends about him, they say, yeah, I've heard of him. He was a robber baron. And after that, it was blank stares. You have Carnegie, Vanderbilt, and uh, Rockefeller. There are things named after them. There's nothing named after Jay Gould. So people, you know, he just slipped from consciousness, even though I think he was the most interesting of the robber barons, and he was certainly the biggest robber of the robber barons. So he deserves he deserves more of the public spotlight than he's been getting. Yes, and Carnegie, Vanderbilt, they built their fortunes much more aligned with what we think of as uh, capital earnings in terms of they had companies which generate a profit and then sort of they made money via that, whereas Jay Gould did a lot of financial speculation. He bought shares, made himself a director, then he sold shares short, he paid himself special dividends. He, can you speak to sort of the financial uh, sleight of hand that was key to his ability to, to make money? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because if you look at the list of all-time richest Americans, which people have put together by comparing wealth divided by GDP, uh, you see that in the top 20, the only ones who made their money on Wall Street were Warren Buffett and Jay Gould. Everyone else, it's a company that they started and just ran with it, whether it be Amazon or Microsoft, or in the case of Rockefeller, Standard Oil. Um, Gould made it by buying and selling, by being a capital allocator, uh, very different than Buffett. While Buffett is the model of integrity, Gould is the model of corruption. Now, if I were to ask you, hey, if insider trading were legal, would you do it? Um, you didn't have to answer the question, but you know, think about it. Um, if it's morally reprehensible but legal, do you do it? If you're the CEO of a company and it's legal for you to use your brother-in-law's uh, printing business or some other vendor that you have a relationship with without disclosing it to shareholders, would you do it? You know, Gould did this kind of stuff, which was morally reprehensible but legal. But he also did things like bribe judges and lawmakers. Um, and that's not something that you're allowed to do. But because he had judges in his back pocket, because he had lawmakers in his back pocket, he got away with all this. What would you say is the thing that uh, Jay Gould did that is the most reprehensible to you? Uh, whether it's against other investors or just against common morality? A lot of what he did was, um, a lot of what he did was just trying to deprive other rich people of their money before they did it to him. But the, the thing that, that bothers me most about Gold, uh, and it's the thing where he does have, what he's best known for is, is Black Friday um, in 19, or, I'm sorry, in 1869, where he blew up the gold market in an attempt to corner it. The way he did that was he tried to get President Grant to buy into a scheme of letting the gold price go up after Gould had bought a bunch of it. He tried to bribe Grant. Grant himself was 
um, incorruptible. But he did get uh, Grant's brother-in-law uh, roped into this. He got the assistant uh, secretary of the treasury involved in this by paying him off. Um, and he also paid off a bunch of, of judges to do what he wanted to do. Uh, it, it all came to a head on Black Friday when Gould began to sell his gold price after running up the price. And the way he ran it up was his buddy Jim Fisk entered into a bunch of uh, trades uh, to buy gold. He agreed, uh, bought contracts to buy it. He didn't have to put down that much money, but people thought that he was good for the, for the money. It drove the gold price way up. Uh, while it was high, gold was able to liquidate. And then when people started to doubt uh, his friend Jim Fisk's ability to honor those contracts, the price crashed and uh, Fisk never honored his obligations, but got away with it because the courts were friendly to Gould because Gould had bribed all the judges. Um, so that, that was the, the most egregious example of how Gould was a crook, and it's the thing that really makes his legacy. What's interesting is after that, um, Gould cleaned up his act a little bit. Uh, Fisk ended up getting killed. Um, he was involved in uh, in a uh, romance with a woman who's, uh, I guess she was like a prostitute and Fisk paid her to be around. She had a boyfriend on the side. The boyfriend tried to shake Fisk down for money, got in trouble for that. He ends up shooting Fisk dead. Um, and once Fisk was out of the picture, Gould cleaned up his act a little bit and um, made money the old fashioned way by, by buying and selling without having to bribe judges. Uh, but. The fact is, he did it, and if you ask me what the most reprehensible thing he ever did, that was it. So many themes uh, are, are lighting up for me. So that was, he tried to corner the gold market in, I think, 1869, so somewhat early in his career. He had a long, long career after that. Uh, and so you know, now, to hear someone say corner the gold market, that's a little bit wild. It's like saying someone saying cornering the oil market or cornering the copper market. It's so vast that you can't imagine a single party trying to you know, stretch and control uh, it, just, just one party. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanna set the stage now. I think during the Civil War, the US started issuing greenbacks, the North, I should say, started issuing greenbacks. And then at the end of the war, uh, and this is just from your book, that uh, basically $100 of the greenback would be equivalent to six ounces of gold. However, it wasn't immediately redeemable. There was a delay and there was question about whether, you know, is $100 actually worth six ounces of gold? Uh, and by the way, I think six ounces of gold now is worth something just shy of $10,000. So it just goes to, to show how much money changes. So uh, gold was trading at something like, a, uh, excuse me, uh, $130 or $140 per six ounces, uh, indicating the uncertainty at which could $100 actually be, be redeemed for, for, for gold. And by the way, Gould, uh, spelled G-O-U-L-D, is the man, and gold, obviously. So we've got to make sure we don't get those confused for, for our audience. Um, what was the opportunity that Gould saw in the gold market? Why did he think he could corner this, this market? Well, the, the, as, as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. issued greenbacks, which uh, untethered dollars from physical gold. We were on the gold standard before that. To finance the war, uh, the North had to, to issue uh, money that wasn't backed by anything, just like today. But unlike today, they promised that once they won the war and financial conditions improved, they would redeem it in gold. In between that time, the gold price fluctuated relative to the greenback. Because the government's declared intention was to bring them back to parity, um, the tendency of the gold price was to narrow versus the greenback price. Gold thought that, well, there might be an opportunity to make money here because everyone believed that the tendency of gold was uh, to fall versus the greenback. Uh, he said, well, if I buy gold and then after I buy all my gold, convince people that, hey, this redemption is not going to happen for a while, that the government is going to let the gold price run for a while, uh, the price of gold would go up and he could sell and make a lot of money. Uh, for, to make that happen, 
and to change the administration's mind about what they thought should happen to Gold, he had to get Grant on his side. So with the help of Grant's brother-in-law, he got an audience with Grant, argued how Grant would really be doing a favor for the farmers by letting the gold price go up. They could sell more gold, they could sell more of their grain overseas, um, make more money, and it would be good for him politically and would help a lot of people back in out west where Grant was from. Um, and then he had trouble getting Grant to come around, uh, but he eventually did, and he did that uh, with the help of, of this fellow, Jim Fisk, by uh, appealing to uh, the, the question of national security. Uh, ultimately, what it came down to was Gould saying, hey, if our farmers don't sell the grain, uh, Russian and Ukrainian farmers would sell the grain, and that's not good for farmers. So, yeah, you can, you can always take steps to, to drive down uh, the gold price and get the greenbacks out of circulation. Grant bought into this, and he did this in defiance of his treasury secretary. He did this against um, those who regularly trafficked in gold on the gold exchange, and the gold price um, started going up. And once Fisk got involved buying up all these contracts, uh, it looked as if, well, maybe this corner that has been rumored is going to succeed. The gold price went nuts, and when it crashed, um, disastrous consequences ensued. There were people who, who got destroyed, who ended up killing themselves. Um, financial markets were in turmoil for a while. Uh, the gold exchange itself went out of business, and um, gold, like I said before, was never brought to justice. And by what means did Gould acquire all this gold? Did he go long gold? He bought some physical gold as well, but he also bought futures. And the key feature of all of many many futures is that you can put leverage, so you can get you know two to one, three to one, five to one, ten to one leverage. Uh, can you speak to the the importance of uh, leverage at that time? Well, that's, that's what made it possible. It, it was like a hundred to one. Wow. And you could do that because at the end of the day, you had to um, true up your position. So if the price fluctuated during the course of the day, you had to either put more margin down or close your position. Um, and that's what Gould was able to do. And he never had to put up a lot more money because he kept um, buying enough gold to keep the price aloft and uh, never got a margin call. Uh, after the, the gold market blew up, um, there were laws passed against doing that, and that opportunity disappeared. But you know, I, I think if, if there hadn't been that opportunity, gold would have found something else. Um, but yeah, that was an opportunity that existed at the time, and he exploited that. And the reason he was able to get away with that, was able to buy enough gold to manipulate the price, was, like you said, gold was a global market, but it wasn't really because in the short term, gold was a local market. Um, there was only as much gold in uh, New York to satisfy you know, the obligations that uh, came into, the, into New York. And it took time to physically transport gold into the gold market. So if you wanted to bring the price down in New York, you had to bring gold from you know, Boston, Philadelphia were close, but they didn't have that much relative to New York. Uh, there was gold out west, but no one wanted to ship it to New York because it could be you know, stolen in a train robbery, and it took two weeks to get gold from Europe. So because the gold market was small um, in New York, he was able to, to boost up the price, and by the time the market would have re returned to equilibrium, gold could have bought and sold and made his, made his money. And how fragile was the banking system, sort of the plumbing of the financial system, at America's beginning, there was the, the first central bank, Bank of the U.S., then there was a second bank of the U.S., then there was the era of free banking where there was no central bank, and that is pretty much the period in which Gould li lived pretty much his entire life, uh, leading up until, of course, the, the Federal Reserve in 1913. Uh, were banking failures common? Did that environment mean that Gould and other financiers played by a slightly different playbook than people do now? Yeah, well, they're... Um... 
banks in those days, they, they could issue their own currency. Uh, and your willingness to accept that currency was a decision that you made about the, the faith and credit of that institution. Uh, bank failures happened all the time. So it was, it was caveat emptor uh, when you would put your money in a bank. And whenever one bank failed, there'd be runs on all the banks uh, because people thought, oh, well, we don't really know what's going on in here. Every bank is a black box, so we better get our money out. So you would have these, uh, you know, economic conflagrations that would flare up from time to time. People called them panics because that's, they didn't talk about recession, they talked about panics because it was indeed a panic situation where everyone would descend on Wall Street where the banks were located and try to get their money out or at least get some assurance that their money was safe. The way the, the system would adjust for that is the banks would get together and, and loan each other money to try to provide some liquidity and show that they were safe. But yeah, well, banks could disappear in an instant. And uh, Gould uh, saw a lot of banks fail in his day. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was just truly, every, there, there's no regulation for anything. Um, you, had, you had auditors going around looking at national banks. Uh, but for the most part, it was just like we had the Wild West out west. You had the Wild West out east, uh, and vigilante justice was sometimes your only recourse, your only remedy. Yeah, in our modern financial system, there's a sort of a law of par that my banking deposit at J.P. Morgan is the same as your banking deposit at Bank of America. No such regulation uh, in Gould's day, not none at all. One way. Greg, that Gould uh, I think took advantage of this liquidity phenomena was something called a deposit trick, where he basically put a bunch of money from one of the companies he owned into the uh, system, and that affected margin rates. And in order to get the the price of the stock to move up or down, can you can you explain that a little bit for our audience? Yeah, one of the more audacious things to me, it's really mind blowing what he did in this case. Uh, in order. He had a short position on the Erie Railroad. In order to make it go down, he thought, well, what I can do is I can blow up the whole market. And Erie, because it has more leverage, it will fall more than most. Well, how can I blow up the whole market? He was in charge of the Erie Railroad at that time. He deposited money at a bank or several banks. And then he, he wrote checks um, on, that, on that money and when he wrote checks, that meant that the banks couldn't um, loan out that money. They had to keep that money in their tills in case someone called on the checks. And that created a, a shortage in the money supply, again, very localized in New York, but enough to drive up the, the margin rate for people who wanted to buy stocks on margin. Well, when the margin rate went up, there is less buying of stocks in the market. That drove the whole market down. Uh, and as he anticipated, Erie fell more than most, and he sold out his, um, he closed his short position on Erie at a, at a fat profit uh, while ruining a lot of people along the way. Yeah, that, that is so wild. And one, one of the crazy aspects of the story is that he was a director of the company. You think directors of the company are long the stock. How is it even possible that he was able to amass a short position in a company that he worked for? Well. One of, the, one of the joys of being a director at a public company in those days is you could manipulate the stock price uh, very easily. You could announce that you're going to increase the dividend, make it go up. Um, you could announce that you're slashing the dividend, make it go down. And Gould learned from his predecessor, a guy named Daniel Drew, uh, one of the great short sellers of all time, that um, all you have to do is, is buy the stock or short the stock before the news and you can make a lot of money and you can just do this all day long without amazingly sacrificing your credibility. People would still listen to you and in fact if you cut the dividend that's not just a bluff, that's something actual and the stock should fall um, for that reason. So Gold would, would just manipulate it as if the, the share price was a yo-yo. Yeah. Um, and again, you couldn't do that now. Right. You'd have to disclose 
um, everything that you're doing, and it would have to all be above board, and you go to jail if you tried these things. But in those days, heck, you could, and because you could, people did, and Gould did it more than anyone. So a lot of the ploys and techniques that Gould used during his lifetime now would be illegal. So I guess my question for you, Greg, is in today's market, those techniques are illegal, but there's lots of ways to game the market or have perhaps, perhaps you disagree, uh, generate an, an unfair advantage. Uh, how do you think Jay Gould would play today's markets uh, if, if he were born, let's say, you know, in 1980 instead of, uh, you know, the 1830s, if you're trading today? I think he would be an admirer of Elon Musk and the way Elon was tweeting about crypto, which I guess was legal. Uh, I think Gould would have spotted that opportunity and, and you know, done the same. Uh, I don't know exactly what happened. No one does with you know, what Eli's crypto book looked like. But if there is an opportunity to manipulate a market, Gould would find it. Um, you know, short selling, for a long time, short squeezes just didn't exist because there, there are these rules about if you uh, acquire so much stock, you have to disclose it. So if you disclose that you know, once you get to 5% of a company, you have to disclose it. How are you ever going to acquire enough stock to, to short something? And yet, here we had it with meme stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there, there are a whole bunch of people who bought stocks just because they were uh, you know, sharing information with one another perfectly legally. This might have been another opportunity that, that Gould spotted before others. I uh, would have plowed into that. So it's it's really fascinating to me and, and ultimately sad for me that we can just come up with regulation, more regulation, more regulation, and still it goes on because you know what? Human nature doesn't change. And as long as there is money to be made, people will find out how to make it by hook or by crook. So I have no doubt that if, if Gould were around today, he would, he would find ways to become just as rich as he was back then. Do you think he would take advantage of reporting regulations where you, you, know, you can't just short, short a bunch of stock and then announce you're cutting the dividend and generate sort of fake news that way. But you can announce things, you, you can sort of create your own metrics and say, okay, uh, GAAP, generally accepted uh, accounting principles. This is GAAP, but don't pay attention to GAAP because GAAP doesn't capture, the, Greg, GAAP doesn't capture the true nature of our business. The true nature of our business is measured on EBITDA, which you know you take out debt, you, you take out interest payments, you take out appreciation. Oh, and by the way, share-based compensation, Greg, that's not real, okay? Actually, we're a profitable company if you, you know, take out all of those things. And investors buy it. Uh, retail investors buy it. Institutional funds buy it. And that is, I, I, a lot of the companies that are down the most this year are companies that have sort of played uh, f some, some accounting funny business. Uh, yeah, cash. yeah I, I think something that Gold might have done is you know, the, the opportunity existed there in the market for last few years just to put out a really compelling story and back that up with, with strong top line growth without dropping anything to the bottom line. Um, we, we have this example of our Carvana, right, where they put out a great story, the founders took out a couple billion dollars, and then the stock cratered. Did they do anything illegal? No. And did they, did they know that this was going to happen? Uh, I don't know. But the fact is, they created a great story. Stock went up a lot. The owners took out a lot of money. That's, that's a classic Jay Gould move. Um, so the more things change, uh, the more they stay the same. Yeah, and one thing, you know, I'm talking about how, how Gould was a crook and he did all these shady things, but Gould was able to do this because he was a very, very smart guy. Um, Rockefeller called him the smartest businessman uh, um, in this country. Vanderbilt said the same thing. Uh, it was very hard to outfox Gould, um, and he worked his tail off. Um, so you, you had a combination where someone was extremely greedy, extremely talented and extremely hardworking and utterly ruthless. And that's how he ended up with one of America's great fortunes. But it wasn't just by being a crook. Yes.
th that's an important point to, to underscore. You, you made a comparison between uh, Gould and Elon Musk. One thing, and by, by the way, you said, you said crypto. I think actually what is the most uh, sketchy, if you can use that word, regarding Elon Musk is would, would have to do with Tesla itself announcing that they, you know, a deal is imminent to, to buy them when there was no such deal. Um, uh, but Elon Musk, he courts the spotlight and you can tell he kind of revels in it. Whereas from, from reading your book, I get the sense that Gould only used the spotlight when he needed to. He didn't really like being that well known. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, no, he, he ran from publicity, but when he could use the press to his uh, favor, he did. Um, most, uh, the best example is he bought the New York Elevated Railroad, which is the precursor to the subway. He did that uh, by uh, scaring the investors who own the publicly traded stock into selling uh, by using the New York world to, to produce all these stories about how the company was going to go under. That drove the stock price down by two-thirds. Gould swept in and, and bought it all, got control of this thing. And the moment that the stock was in his hands, the New York world started re reporting about how great his prospects were. The stock price popped up right to where it had been. Uh, Gold made a fortune on that. And he did it all by using the press. Now, Gold couldn't keep his name out of the press. There was, there was a period where he was involved in a mining strike. He was on the front page every day for, for a year. Um, another instance where he used the press was to try to manipulate the election of 1886 that Grover Cleveland won. Gould owned the Western Union. The Western Union was the one that transmitted the Associated Press wire stories uh, from the different states on election night. By withholding the results in certain states, Gould gave the uh, supporters of, of, the, of Cleveland's opponent, James Blaine, time to stuff the ballot boxes. It didn't work. Uh, Cleveland one anyway, but you know, it made me think, what would Elon have done if he had gotten Twitter? You know, we might never know, but um, it's not uncommon for media barons to use their soapboxes to try to influence elections. We've got Fox News on one side, we've got the New York Times on another. Uh, yeah, Gould was doing all that stuff. Why was Gould so loathed by the public? You know, I imagine at the time that the the me, uh, median income person, you know, to the extent that they had wealth, it was maybe perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, in real estate or land, maybe not a large percentage of it in stocks. Very wealthy, of course, a large percentage of it in stocks. So it seems like to the extent that Gould was, quote, screwing people over, my words, not yours, it was fellow wealthy folks. But it seems like the uh, hatred for him, if I can use that word, extended far beyond uh, other wealthy people. It seems like everyone sort of heavily disliked him and feared him. Why was that the case? Did it have to do with the, the media who had some sort of obsession with him? Uh, what's your reason for that? Uh, Gould didn't do anything on the public relations front. He thought it was better to be feared than loved. So while you know, Vanderbilt would talk to the press and Carnegie uh, more than anyone, uh, courted the press and buttressed his reputation by giving away a lot of money in his lifetime. Gould didn't do anything like that. Um, he thought, um, like I said, it's better for people to not to have any insights into how he thought, not to think kindly of him, to think that he was the incarnation of evil. Um, after the gold scandal, he became a target, um, but unlike Fisk, his partner in that, who did a lot on the public relations front, uh, Gould didn't do anything. So he ends up being the scapegoat for, for what the reform crowd thought was all that was wrong with the US financial system. Greg, in addition to being a journalist and financial author, you also work in the investment business currently. How have you made sense of this year? I, I know it's been absolutely wild. Inflation skyrocketing higher interest rates all across the yield curve going up, uh, the degree to you know, stocks down, that it's impacted different types of business with different characteristics in very different ways. Uh, what has, I mean, there's so much we can go with there, but what, what res really stood out to you uh, this year? Well, I, I think the lesson in here is don't fight the Fed. And so when, 
when rates were coming down, uh, asset values went up, PEs went through the roof. And some people thought that was crazy, but your, the best yields you could make were in stocks and uh, the rates reflected that. Uh, then as soon as the tide turned on rates, um, you felt it in asset prices. You know, how do I make sense of this year? How do I make sense of last year? You know, it, it, we came off of a great year with stocks and then lo and behold, we had another one. And this was happening uh, at a time when people were saying that asset prices were already inflated and there was a bubble and it just kept going up and up and up. And I'm thinking not about Gould's era, but you know, what we saw in the 20s, right? Prices kept going up and up until they couldn't go up anymore. And as soon as the Fed turns, boom. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, of course, I wish I had foreseen this, uh, but at my firm, we're not in the business of trying to pick the macro and just try to pick great companies. Um, but yeah, now in hindsight, it looks like, well, don't fight the Fed. Right now, we're recording this on September 27th. As you're sort of scouring the investment universe of stocks that you don't own, as well as stocks that you currently do own, are you seeing more opportunity in valuations, you know, relative to their intrinsic valuation than you were, let's say, a year ago when S&P 500 was at its all-time high? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tons of opportunity. Although I would have said that a few weeks ago, you know, stocks have kept going down. So you know, a famous adage on Wall Street is how do you catch a falling knife? Uh, it's not easy. And as attractive as some uh, prices look today, you know, what happens if, if we do have a real recession? What happens if we have a prolonged recession? Uh, what happens if we still have you know, supply chain issues a year from now? We don't have enough semiconductors a year from now. It seems clear that the Fed, more than anything, wants to bring labor prices uh, back uh, into line. Uh, right now, we still have a labor shortage. Uh, you know, you go out to a restaurant, you noticed it yourself, where the wait time sometimes can be pretty darn long just because there isn't enough help. Uh, so how does the Fed turn what is a very strong market for labor into a very weak one, bringing wages down? Um, you can only do that by increasing the unemployment rate. And if you increase the unemployment rate, what happens to demand for other things? So some of this has been priced into stocks, but there is still, there's still enough optimism out there that if things don't work out, uh, you can see prices fall even more. What sorts of companies, whether it's a sector or I guess a, a style, um, are drawing your attention the most? Well, companies with, with uh, solid cash flow. Um, we think about stocks as owning a piece of a business. Warren Buffett, um, it's, it's easier to sleep at night if you own a company that doesn't have a lot of leverage, that generates cash, that uh, you can be comfortable that whatever happens, it's still going to be around in the future. Um, now, we're not alone in looking for those kind of companies right now, um, but it, it is easier to sleep at night if, if you own something that you know has a competitive moat that has uh, value that uh, provides an indispensable product that you know is, is going to be around no matter what happens. Oh. Greg, uh, Gould made a lot of his money in the railroad business. And I'd like you to sort of walk us through what were the characteristics of the railroad business? Because uh, there was so much capital that needed to be put up up front. You know, before a single dime gets, gets made in terms of selling tickets, you have to you know, spend millions of dollars on building the tracks, building the trains. Uh, so what were the characteristics? Uh, how, did, how did that, sort of those, those economics, uh, translate itself to the market? Uh, did it make it more speculative? And then, then also, can you sort of take us later on into the railroad era where I, I believe a lot of the companies went bankrupt? Yeah. Uh, the railroad business had some good characteristics and some bad ones. The, one of the bad ones is it needed a lot of capital to grow. On the other hand, that created the modern Wall Street because you needed to reach out um, 
and look under every rock to find the capital that you needed to lay all that track, to find the people and pay them to lay that track. Um, before railroads, you didn't have to go to Wall Street. You could, you could raise money from you know, a handful of rich friends and build a factory to do something like uh, you know, tan leather or make shoes or, or what have you. Um, railroads couldn't do that. You needed a lot of money. Um, there wasn't enough money in the U.S. To, to get all the money you needed to build railroads. You had to reach out to, to London and, and Berlin and, and Paris. Um, with that, you had the rise of Wall Street, and that created speculative opportunities for guys like Gould, who could buy and sell uh, pieces of paper on short notice. Another thing you couldn't do in the old days when markets weren't as liquid. So that was one good thing. But yeah, it was capital intensive uh, and very competitive. Um, everyone and his brother was trying to build a railroad. On the other hand, and this is what got people excited about the stocks, is there's a lot of growth. So you could look out into the future and say, hey, we've now got a railroad that crosses the Rockies. The West is going to fill up with people. Um, there's going to be a lot more freight moving on the rails. There's going to be a lot more people moving on the rails. So if I can find the right railroad that has some monopoly characteristics within its region, I can make a lot of money. The Union Pacific, which was the first transcontinental railroad, for a time was the only railroad to cross the Rockies. That was a huge opportunity, and it could get away with charging a lot. On the other hand, it had a lot of debt, and the West didn't develop as fast as the promoters of the Union Pacific were hoping for. Um, but that was the growth industry of its age with the internet opportunity of its age uh, with the railroad. And just like you know, the dot-com bubble, a lot of things blew up. A lot of e-commerce companies have, have come and gone. Uh, same with railroads. Everyone was going after it. Um, but was more money made than lost? I'm not sure. What was investor psychology like during Gould's time? Now, sort of, I feel like it oscillates drastically between extreme optimism and extreme pessimism. But there's also this idea that I think has originated in, in a definitely a grain of truth of buy the dip, you got to be long. You know, look at the S and P 500 since 1950. You know, the drawdowns you can't even see them on the chart. So just be long. The sort of rise of passive investing. Um, but yeah, what what was sort of the the median investor, what was their psychology like? How do they approach markets? How do they think about uh, upswings? How do they think about downswings? Anything different from today? Yeah, the, uh, there wasn't really a retail market until after the Civil War. Again, the railroads created that opportunity because there was a lot of stock um, that, was, that was being bought and sold every day. The, the man on the street saw that the prices of these little pieces of paper could go up a lot, fall a lot, wanted to get in on it. So for the first time, we did have um, all sorts of people, um, you know, housewives, um, uh, ordinary laborers, workers, uh, school teachers, ministers, a lot of people were playing the market for the first time. So there was, there was a speculative frenzy that would, would ebb and flow, just like it does now. When stocks were going up, a lot of people rushed in. When they were falling, people panicked, and you couldn't get them to, to part with their money. Uh, investor psychology, I, I think, is very similar to what it is today. And today you have all sorts of protections for investors, and yet those who want to speculate and gravitate towards the most speculative instruments, whether it be crypto or meme stocks or something else, they're out there. And in those days, it was the same thing. Um, one of Gould's associates was a guy named Russell Sage, uh, nicknamed the Money King, who was the first to uh, introduce um, a retail market for, for calls and puts. Uh, the attraction there was for very little money down, you could make a lot of money. Um, it, was, it was like going to the track, but that's what, that's what his customers wanted. They wanted the speculative opportunities that they couldn't get just buying a, a share of Union Pacific. Um, so investor psychology, that, that gambling instinct um, that you hear about Wall Street now, that Wall Street is just a casino, is the same in those days.
Yes, and actually that's, I think, a lot of how investors got such large access to GameStop shares, AMC shares, is they owned extremely out-of-the-money call options that became more in the money. So it was sort of this reflexive spiral, and they ended up owning, owning a lot of it and causing a squeeze. I know if you, like, say, look at a chart of the volumes of call options, particularly volumes of call options of under 50 lots indicating retail investor, it just absolutely exploded in, in 2020 and 2021. Uh, how severe would you say the speculative frenzy in 2020 and 2021 was relative to other periods in history, you know, ones that you saw yourself in the investment business, like 98, 99, 2000, uh, as well as other ones that you've studied throughout history, but before your time? The, the volume um, was just a trickle compared to is today. The New York Times would, would show you every trade for a particular stock. There was just so little volume going on in significant lots. There was more action going on you know, at, at the retail level, but the, the shares that traded on the exchange uh, were so few in number that uh, you, could, you could actually report every trade in the newspaper. Uh, there was a market uh, before noon, and then it opened for a few hours after that. It was open on Saturday. Um, so most people uh, didn't, weren't involved in stocks, uh, didn't really follow the stock market. Um, that's, that came more in the 1920s before the crash. Um, but there was volatility, and those people who wanted to play the market because of the, the opportunity to get rich quick, they found their way to Wall Street. What lessons did you learn either about how to conduct yourself or the market in general while researching and, and writing this book? Well, one of the more interesting things to me, and it, it provides a lot of comfort times like this when we're in a bear market, is these things sort them, their, themselves out uh, one way or another. And Gould used to say that the, there's a lot of stocks on Wall Street, but the one that's missing is the stock of patience. So markets rise, they fall, we survive. Um, what you don't want to do is sell into the panic um, and just have faith that these little pieces of paper that you own are backed by companies that perform important services and you know, just stay the course. Um, and Gould, you know, he had he had nerves of steel. Uh, boy, with with the risk that he was taking during some of his uh, short squeezes, uh, there were plenty of times where had he bet wrong, he could have been destroyed. Uh, but you know, he believed in himself, uh, stayed the course, and, and emerged victorious. Uh, so, for me, that that was that was a lesson. That uh, I, I think, you know, I'm reading these stories now about how a lot of investors they've never experienced a, a, a bear market before. Um, one of the nice things about studying history is you get exposure to the mistakes people have made in the past. You know, it's not you don't want to study history. You, you don't want to learn history. You want to learn from history, and. Anyone who reads this book, I think, will, will get a better sense of how markets um, there's, there are ebbs and flows and, um, and how to, you can learn lessons about how to survive a tough market by, by seeing how, how it's affected others in the past. So that was one lesson for me. Uh, the other lesson for me was just how well markets could function in the absence of regulation. That the invisible hand, yeah, there are winners and losers, there are people who got hurt, um, but uh, laissez-faire uh, do, does its work, the pricing mechanism does its work, uh, caveat emptor was powerful, um, now we, we want to protect everyone from harm to the point where there is even discussion about Know, having something akin to deposit insurance for crypto investors, um, those aren't things that are going to breed frugality, thrift, all these other virtues. Uh, in Gould's day, um, 
thrift, frugality, uh, having a, a good antenna for, for crooks, uh, those things are really rewarded. And uh, you know, we're missing some of that in today's markets. We definitely are. There are a lot of companies, I'll name names, you don't have to, but I'll name the names, uh, where they've been entirely, for their entire existence, dependent on investor and capital in, in to grow. In other words, they can't use profits to grow their business because there are no profits. Uber is an example of that. It did so in the private markets. It was uh, sort of coddled by the private markets, you know, $60 billion valuation. It then went public. Uh, now it's, it's the public markets who, on whose capital it, it is relying. Was there anything like that even remotely uh, during Gould's day? Let me think, were there, you know, essentially story stocks where the story was so compelling that they could keep raising money uh, again and again uh, in the belief that, you know, 10 years down the road, they would achieve sufficient scale to finally start dropping money to the bottom line. Um, no, that wasn't going on. And that's because you, you didn't have the transparency uh, that would have given investors the confidence to, to go for a story like that. Uh, dividends were very important. Um, you needed to, to pay out money in the here and now to maintain your stock price. Every stock in those days went public at $100 a share. If you paid the dividend that investors expected, it would stay at $100 a share. Um, if you didn't, the stock would fall. Um, and the, the role of dividends was much more important. So something like Uber, where you could say, okay, just, just bear with us. We're going to get to escape velocity here. Um, you can get away with that. That wouldn't mm -hmm. work. That, that's really interesting. And because you mentioned dividends, I know that way back in the day, way back in the day, you know, uh, uh, Graham and Dodd, it, I don't think it was based on a price to earnings ratio or you know, enterprise value to EBITDA. It was uh, based on the dividend yield. So a company that yielded $5, but you bought it at $100 and paid $5 in dividend, that was a 20 you know, dividend uh, ratio instead of a price to earnings ratio. Uh, what, uh, can, you, can you speak about the valuation metrics at the time? Uh, this is way of, of Gould's time, way before Graham and Dodd. And was, was uh, Gould a believer in these valuation metrics? Uh, did, he, did he use them, uh, believing in them, or did he use them thinking, oh, I, I only care about this because other people care about it, or did he not really care about valuation at all? Oh, he cared very much about valuation. Um, and he thought about it, yeah, in terms of how much cash he could pay himself, how much he could extract from the company, either by uh, uh, generating more profits to pay out higher dividends, or by um, elevating the stock price. Um, but the you know, dividends, there weren't any taxes in those days, right? So it could all go out to shareholders without any tax leakage. You could get the cash and then reinvest it in something else that you thought offered even more opportunity for growth. Now, you, you know you're gonna get hit, uh, and you know, in some cases, give up half your money by paying out a dividend. So the, the incentive there was to get money out as quickly as you could, whereas nowadays, you wanna keep that money in a tax advantage situation. There's something like a growth company that doesn't pay any dividend, and you make your money by selling the stock down the, lot, the line and, and paying a capital gains rate, or maybe you know, not paying taxes on something until you know, you're retired and your personal tax rate goes down. Uh, that comes into play in your financial decision-making. Um, and in Gould's day, it was very different. So yeah, he thought about valuation, he, but he liked to, to buy things that he knew were uh, trading below. He, he talked about intrinsic value. He talked about the growth prospects. Um, he went before Congress once, and at the time they were you know, grilling him about manipulating stock prices and doing all these bad things he would uh, just unsolicited give out investment advice and, and talk about the, the value of growth um, and how he made more money investing in companies that grew than in companies that didn't grow but paid out fat dividends. Um, and he did that as a way to underline how 
as much as he might have looked like he was just some common criminal, he was also doing his part to, to build America and, and expand um, opportunities for, for all Americans by building rail lines. Greg, well, it's been a pleasure uh, getting the chance to interview uh, you. The book is American Rascal. I read it and loved it, and so everyone who's watching this should check it out. Greg, my final question for you is the final paragraph of your, of your work is that that's the, uh, that's the thing about Gould. He lied, he cheated, he stole. But he was so good at what he did, so intelligent in the execution, and such a, quote, clean, kind, and industrious, end quote, family man that try as you might, you can't hate him properly. My final question for you, Greg, is can readers, can people who study uh, Jay Gould's life, people like you, can you incorporate some of Gould's uh, uh, practices? Can you learn from him without sort of being contaminated by the greed and the deception that characterize much of his dealings? Is it possible to be find, find, you know, for him to be redeemable? Yeah, yeah there's, there's all sorts of lessons. Um, you know, I mentioned the, the lesson of patience, uh, the lesson of, of, of getting as much information as you can, the lesson in trying to figure out what the other side is thinking. Um, you know, one thing that uh, stood out that I could be better at doing, I think we could also be better at doing, is just being a better listener. Gould didn't try to score points uh, just by opening his mouth at every opportunity he could to show that he was smarter than people. Uh, if he was in a meeting with his railroad executives, he would let everyone else talk before he did. If he was at a meeting listening to some others talk about you know, their investment ideas, he would he would clam up and not say anything until the very end. He was a very good listener uh, to the point where, you know, it was frustrating for people because he didn't say a whole lot. So they were forced to try to read the tea leaves. But yeah, being a good listener was one of Gould's many skills. And again, another reason why we can't hate him properly. Also, he was, he was a wonderful family man. There's this show on HBO now called The Gilded Age. That character is modeled after Gould because as much as he was a shark on Wall Street, he was a loving and devoted family man. Vanderbilt, when his wife became inconvenient, had her uh, incarcerated. Vanderbilt called his oldest son a blockhead every chance he got. Uh, Gould was a great father and a great husband. So, you know, it's hard to hate a guy like that completely. Yeah, definitely, and I'm sure reading all of his journals and newspaper clippings, you really get a, a complete picture of the man. Uh, Greg, thank you so much, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the chance. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Before I let you go, please subscribe to Forward Guidance on your favorite podcast app, whether that's Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. Thank you.